0: Well, my friends, our text this morning is amazing. It's just six short verses in Isaiah chapter 12. It's on page 576 of your pew Bible. In these six short verses, Isaiah does something wonderful, something that if we are honest, we desperately need. Isaiah shows you, listen, Isaiah shows you at your absolute best. You, after God has triumphed in grace over all your failures. The last four sermons were titled God's Triumph of Grace Over Our Failures, Part 1, 2, 3, and 4. And they were long, lengthy verses that talked about our sin and God's righteous anger towards it. Today, we see our response of grace, and it's just six verses. I think we can get this right. Today, we're on the backside of those multiple sermons. Our sermon is titled, Our Response to the Triumph of Grace. Now, are you ready to visualize yourself at your absolute best? Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim his name. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of God, the the. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We wanna know God, we wanna know his will, we wanna know his way, we must know his word, let's pray. Father, thank you for this word for us. As we will see, it, it seems way too good to be true. Is this really who we now are? Is this really what you give to us? Uh, can, can our lives really be this transformed by your grace? Help us to see that as true. Help us to respond with great love and delight and, and singing. We pray in your name. Amen. I'd like to begin with a question. Actually, it's really not a question, it's more one of those complete this sentence kind of tasks. So, cl- complete this sentence in your mind. Don't speak it out loud, all right? God wants me to fill in the blank. Just take time to think that through. Not what God wants your neighbor, your husband, your wife. God wants me to. Search your soul. Figure it out. When you're done, just put a smile on your face. I'll know you're finished. God wants me to. My guess is that most of us answered wrong, Christians included. Now, your typical American unbeliever will finish the sentence with something like, God wants me to have a good time. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, how many of you completed that sentence with some sort of spiritual discipline, like God wants me to read my Bible more or pray more or forgive more or serve more or forgive or give more money or have more faith? In other words, God wants me to clean up my act. God wants me to prove I'm a dutiful Christian. Now, I'm not saying that we should not desire such things. I am saying that they are not tops on God's lists for us, for you. How does God complete the sentence? God wants us to drink in, and drink in, and drink in His great. That is his number one desire for you. Not to do, but to drink. And we become the best we could ever possibly be when we live this way. We see this in verse three, which is the central verse. Look at it again. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We can read that fast and it'll go in one ear out the other. With joy... (laughs) We will draw water from the wells of salvation. God does not have thimbles full of grace for us. No, He has deep, satisfying wells of salvation, and He wants us to drink in and drink in and drink in. What does this say about God's people? Does it not say we are oh so thirsty for his grace? Think about it. Why do you feel a dryness in your life? It's because you're thirsty. Why do you feel like you can never get the Christian life right? Because you're thirsty. Why do you feel more like Eeyore and less like Tigger? (laughs) It's because you're thirsty. Have you ever seen a movie, they're typically westerns, when a man has been wandering the desert for days and days, he's parched, he's without water, and then he comes upon a lake. Let me ask you, does he methodically dip his, approach, the, approach the lake nice and slowly? Does he take out his canteen and slowly put it under the water to fill it? No, he jumps in with his clothes on, and in between deep gulps of water, he splashes around with giddy joy. Now you might think it unchristian, but that is what Isaiah says God offers his people. Remember when you're a little kid and you're play wrestling with your dad and you couldn't stop laughing as he pins you to the floor and he's tickling you, you're about to pee in your pants, right? You finally caught your breath and you said, stop, stop. But you really wanted it to go on forever. And so 20 minutes later, you tried to pick another fight with your dad. But he was done playing for the day. Listen, listen closely. You do not get Christianity or the gospel or Jesus correctly if you do not receive and rejoice in this truth. Here it is. God wants our parched souls to drink so deeply and so recklessly and so thoughtlessly from his wells of salvation that our thirst is so quenched that we laughingly say, stop, stop. But we want it to go on forever. And with our Lord's salvation, he's never done for the day. God the Father loves you. Listen, you need to hear that. God, your Father, loves you. He desires that you live every moment of every day, what, wishing you could be a little better? No. Drinking from the sweet and satisfying wells of salvation. That is his greatest desire for us. And when this reality comes into your life, this is when you experience the best you possible. That's what we're gonna look at this morning under two headings, grace for you, and grace for this world. First, grace for you. Now, before God's grace can become grace for you, you must first know what? That you are in need of his grace. Now, most people in our society today do not see themselves in need of God's mercy. Rather, people, they will console themselves for their sin. C.S. Lewis wrote of this in his masterful book, The Problem of Pain. Here's what he says. Everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be annoying him at the moment. Thus, a man easily comes to console himself for all his other vices by the conviction that his heart's in the right place, or he wouldn't hurt a fly though in fact he has never made the slightest sacrifice for a fellow creature. We think we are kind when we're only happy. It is not so easy on the same grounds to imagine oneself temperate, chaste, or humble. We console ourselves. The whole point of Lewis's chapter four is to help the reader to understand that God is right to be angered at our lives. See, before we experience God's grace, we must first agree that we are in dire need. We cannot console ourselves. And so before Christ calls us to come to him, before this call rings beautiful in our ears, we need to know our lives are not beautiful in God's eyes. Does that make sense? And then when we are humbled by our sin and believe that God is right to be angered at us, we come to experience the triumph of his grace over our failure. Is that not what Isaiah writes in verse 1? Look at it. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort. Isaiah describes our salvation with these words. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Isaiah is saying, God is your former enemy. Now he comes to comfort you. Isaiah knew this up front and personal. And bear in mind, these first few verses are in the singular, you, as in you, Isaiah, and you, us. Remember in chapter 6, where Isaiah cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah saw what every Christian comes to see, that the wrath of God against us is warranted and right. But what did God do for Isaiah? God turned away his anger, remember? How was that done? Well, there was a sixth-winged seraph who got a hot coal with tongs from the altar and pressed it against Isaiah's lips. Remember from that sermon that the Isaiah's source of greatest pride and his greatest sin was his mouth. And the Lord purified him there. And then the triumph of God's grace over Isaiah's sin became praise from those lips. We see it here. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. And so now here's an important question. What was God's desire in saving Isaiah? What's his end game for Isaiah? And therefore, what is God's end game? His reason for saving you and me. Look at the end of verse one. Your anger turned away so that what? So that what? So that you might comfort me. It's amazing, right? God saves you with the desire that he might be your comforter. This must amaze us. If it does not, your heart is cold to the gospel. Now, another word for comfort here, based on the context, is the word console. Remember what C.S. Lewis said earlier. Everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be annoying him at the moment. Thus, a man easily comes to console himself for all his other vices by the conviction that his heart's in the right place. It's true of all humanity, until we admit we anger God by our sinful lives, we will console ourselves and say to ourselves that we're okay, but we're not okay. Only God can forgive you and console you for your sins. And this truth should scare us, that our consolation is out of our hands, but then the words of Isaiah resound in our grace-starved ears. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. My friends, it's when your consoling, your comfort comes from God. It's then that you experience life at its best. See, the Christian knows that he cannot console himself. But does this not then open up feelings of guilt then? He falls short and sins and he starts to hear the condemnation of God's enemy. You know what I'm talking about, right? But listen, God does not want us to to hear the lives of Satan. For Satan will say, oh, you did it again. Hmm. I think you need to feel that guilt. You're, You're not a really good Christian, are you? Or, God's surely got you in a spiritual time out. You're going to have to try a lot harder next time. Christian, instead of listening to the lives of Satan, God wants you to boldly come into his presence, to the throne of, of grace. And instead of pity and self-criticism and self-abasement, he wishes that we would receive another refreshing gulp from his wells of salvation. See, Christian, you need to wrap your head around this amazing truth. For each and every sin you commit, God has comfort for you. Remember the words of 1 John? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's Jesus, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, or that as Christians we don't continue to sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. It doesn't seem right. God seems to be too lavish. That's that's way too much grace. You're thinking, you know, I'd rather go about my Christian life the way I've always done it. And what is the way we have always tend to do the Christian life? Like this. We feel guilty for some sin. We believe that God is angry with us until we clean up our act. And if we've gone a few days without being too bad, then we begin, we begin to feel better about our Christian life. Do you see that in your life? Is that part of it? Does that, that creep in? But this is not the Christian life, and it's definitely not your best life now. The Christian life is to daily draw satisfying waters of grace from God's ever-flowing wells of salvation. Whenever Satan tempts you to despair, God wants you to joyfully draw some more water from the wells of salvation. And when you do, you will find that God consoles you once again. Why? Because this is his desire. This is the way of the gospel. This is how you experience your best life now. Isaiah is just getting started. Verse two presents something else we will say in that day. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. A transition has taken place. At one point, God was not Isaiah's salvation, but now Isaiah says, God is has become my salvation. And notice Isaiah doesn't say God gives me salvation. No, God is my salvation, God himself. Think of all the false saviors we lean upon in life. As we discussed last week, all of our sources of self salvation, in the end, they strike us down. They never ever satisfy our thirst. But when you drink from the well of salvation you come to understand that it is the lord who is your salvation the lord is the well the lord is the fountain the lord is the refreshing spring remember what jesus once said to that soul parched samaritan woman at the well everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that i will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a, a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Today we Christians can live duplicitous lives. We say we belong to Christ in his kingdom. He is our salvation. And yet we set our hearts on our own kingdoms and our own side hustles in search of some other salvation. And so we cling to God plus whatever else makes us feel comfortable or secure or superior. But it won't always be this way. Thankfully, Isaiah says, there's a day coming when the Messiah of God returns to restore all things. You will say in that day, behold, God is my salvation. No longer will you lean on anything else which is so easy to do in this life. You will say, I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Remember we live in the already not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven has come in Christ Jesus, but it has not yet fully come with his return, which means today, listen, we live as aliens and strangers in a world that will one day be ours. Which is why today the Lord God is our strength and our song. The world rejects him, but he alone is our salvation. He alone lavishes us with the wells of salvation. And so what does this living in the already not yet look like? Some of you are too young to have ever seen the movie Singing in the Rain. It's a 1952 movie starring Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and, yes, Debbie Reynolds. There's a scene in the movie where Gene Kelly's character, Don Lockwood, is so full of joy that he sings and dances in the rain. He walks out of his brownstone and a car is waiting. Surely he will get in because it's a downpour outside, but no, he motions the car to move on without him, and he starts singing and dancing in the rain. To enjoy the scene, we need to get inside Donald Lockwood's head and heart and experience with him the sense of joy that causes him to sing and dance in the middle of a downpour. Why are scenes like this so powerful upon us? Because God has made us all with the capacity to break out in song when joy fills our hearts. Isaiah writes, the Lord is my strength and my song. Listen, as we reject all other saviors that are vying for our attention, and we lean upon the Lord, who is now our strength and our song, and as we draw in for the cool and satisfying wells of salvation, singing of God's greatness comes naturally to us. And so this week, if you find yourself walking through the reign of life again and feeling sorry for yourself or feeling inadequate as a Christian, take in a deep drink from the wells of salvation as God lovingly consoles you once again and sing of his wonderful grace in this downpour of life. That is his grace for you. Now Isaiah turns to grace for this world. The big idea here is this. When you are one who drinks deep from the wells of salvation, a byproduct is that you join in with God's people with missional zeal. The deeper we drink, the greater our praise, and the more we proclaim the Lord's name to this world. Jesus spoke on this in John chapter 7. Here's what the apostle John wrote. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John goes on to say, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, and we have received, for as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified, right? He didn't go to the cross yet. He hasn't ascended into heaven, but he has sent that spirit. Jesus said, if you thirst, come to me, believe in me, Jesus is identifying himself as these wells that Isaiah spoke of, 750 years before Jesus. Jesus sees himself as God's grace that pours out unceasingly. But notice this. The water isn't to flow into us and stay there. No. Jesus said the water has an effect upon us, so as what? To create a river of grace that flows out of us into this world. Do you see your relationship with Jesus this way? Have you ever stood by a stagnant pond, maybe in a farm field? Water trickles in and it stays there. The water stagnates, becomes almost lifeless. But what if you see another pond and there's a stream that flows into it? And there's a stream that flows out of the pond. The pond is fresh, and it's full of life. That is what Jesus says happens when we drink in from the wells of salvation. His life in us, by his spirit dwelling in us, transforms us. And then Christ flows in us and out of us. That is what Jesus says, and that is what Isaiah says. In verse 3, the grammar changes. The you is plural. In verses 1 and 2, the you is singular, meaning you as an individual experience salvation and comfort from God. But also, as we see in verses 4 and 5, there is a corporate reality to it. You have been saved into the people of God. Lone Ranger Christianity isn't just unbiblical. It leaves you thirsty. So as we study verse 4 and 6, have this in mind, that the body of Christ, united by his grace, drinking deep from the wells of salvation, that is who we are. And we give thanks to the Lord, and we make his name known in this world. Another detail to consider is this. Our proper response as as a group, as a church, to drinking from the wells of salvation is both vertical up to God, and it's horizontal to all the people of the earth. In other words, our response to drinking from the wells of salvation is up to God in thanks and praise, and out to this world so that others may hear of his greatness, and that they too may drink of his grace. These two responses, vertical and horizontal, are so intertwined in our lives, or at least they're supposed to be, that they form two parts of the same stanza. Let's look for that. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 again. You, plural, give thanks to the Lord, vertical. Call upon his name, vertical. Make known his deeds among the peoples, horizontal. Proclaim his name is exalted, horizontal. Verse five, you, plural, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously, vertical. Let this be made known in all the earth, horizontal. These aren't separate verses. These are just like one point together right? Do you see the relationship between our delight in the gospel up towards God and our sharing of the gospel out towards others? There is a truth that operates as a divine law. The more we drink from the fountain of God's grace, the more we thank God and the more we tell others. As the Mandalorian said, this is the way. John Piper famously stated, listen, mission exists because worship doesn't. Please get this straight. Missions isn't about you and your little fears. Mission is about this world rightly knowing God. That is what the last verse of chapter 12 describes. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What is the greatest asset a human being can possess? Is it all the gold in Fort Knox? Maybe you're not into gold anymore. In New Age, crypto. Uh, Is it all the Bitcoin that used to exist at FTX? (laughs) No, the greatest asset is what Isaiah proclaims. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Christian, at some point in your spiritual journey, you will come to realize that God alone is your greatest asset. God alone, as you lean on Him and drink His abundant, overflowing salvation, God is your greatest asset. And as you do this, this is where you experience your Best life ever. God with you, in your midst, up close and personal. There could be no greater reality for you. And consider this. How does God in your midst come into your life? Is it because you want to be near God? Eh, kinda, but not Really? See, you can only be near God because what? God first desires to be near you. God is the great missionary. God always takes the first step towards his people. God being in our midst was God's idea. It is his grace given to us. Did you see how wonderful the wells of salvation are? It is this deluge of of God who is in our midst. It causes us to go out and tell others. So please, do not feel that sense of guilt for not evangelizing and then in your guilt determine to be a better Christian and evangelize more. No. When you feel guilty for being a stagnant pond, don't go into the world as a stagnant pond to evangelize your neighbors. Stagnant ponds aren't very appealing. And they might just get the gospel wrong. No, God's design for you when you feel guilty for being a stagnant pond is for you to draw the fresh water from the wells of his grace. And as fresh water comes upon you, it what refreshes your soul. And you will give thanks to the Lord. And then you will find these springs of living water. They now flow out of you towards your neighbor naturally. Do you get it? Do you want it? The grace of God flowing in and through you individually and through us corporately is the mode by which God graces this world. Vertically as a church, we're rejoicing in God. We're doing that right now here. And so we move out horizontally as a church then in love for our neighbors and we share Christ with them. We just can't do the one without the other. But we can't do the one and then do the other as stagnant ponds, right? Our neighbors don't need that. They need Jesus in us and through us. The best you possible is you and us filled with the spirit of God and the grace of God rejoicing at all times as we overflow with love for our neighbor. We began by completing the sentence, God wants me to. And I hope you've come to see that God doesn't want us to clean up our acts or prove we're dutiful Christians. God desires that we drink in and drink in and drink in from the wells of his salvation. He wants us to daily live under the waterfall of his grace. And when we live lives deluged under God's grace, we are changed for good. How can we not be? We become people who look and live and act like Christ. We put off sin and we put on righteousness. We stop living for ourselves and instead live for him who loves us and gave our life for us, Jesus, who has become our salvation. My friends, God truly has your best life on his mind. Which is why he's turned his anger from us to console us. His desire is that we drink deep from the wells of our salvation in Christ. Our best lives are formed there. So may we long to be there. And may we regularly gather together and shout and sing for joy, for great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Father, on the one hand, this sounds so beautiful, so refreshing. We want it. Our souls want it. And yet, on the other hand, our sinful flesh says, I don't really need that much grace. Let me console myself. Let me lean on my side hustles. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to work in us, to change our affections, to cause us to think rightly in this fallen world, to cherish grace above all things, to delight having God in our midst where our best life is found. We long for the day when our sinful flesh will be gone. We long for that day when you return. For now, give us your power and your strength, we pray. Amen.